Good morning. My name is Richard Vetter. Uh, I am the director of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity, and we are co-sponsoring today's conference with uh, the Cato Institute, of course. And I, in all fairness, I must say Cato did most of the work for the conference, and right off the bat, I wish to express uh, my appreciation to Neil McCluskey of Cato for his stellar work and that of many others, my colleague Jonathan Robe and Matt Denhart, my colleagues, and, and many others. So oh, you'll probably hear more about them later as the day goes along. Both Cato and CCAP have done a good bit of work on various aspects of the economics of higher education, and I think there are some literature and papers out there that you feel free to pick up. There's a great study by a person who's going to be on the first panel, Mark Bauerlein, which I urge all of you to read, and he will be glad to autograph it if requested. Uh, a key uh, component of higher education costs, of course, is, is associated with having a faculty. And it's unlikely that higher education costs will be contained in higher education without some change in the way the faculty of universities interact with their students. So today's conference explores various dimensions of this problem, hopefully offering some insights as to how efficiency and productivity uh, can be enhanced without sacrificing quality, indeed maybe with improving quality. But you don't want me to hear me pontificate. Let's get on with the show. We will have an ad addition to Steve Trachtenberg, the om almost iconic uh, President Emeritus of George Washington University, who's speaking with us at lunch. We will have three good panel discussions. Each will last about 75 minutes, and I'm very uh, pleased uh, to announce that the first panel will be moderated by a very distinguished higher education journalist, uh, Liz McMullen. Uh, Liz is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, their Western Civ program. She's worked for 27 years at the Chronicle of Higher Education and was named its editor in August. Uh, I think as being the editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education, Liz is at the pinnacle of her profession, an accomplishment that is much deserved. So I ask Liz and other panelists to come forth for the first panel. Thank you all for uh, joining us this morning. I'm going to give you a fairly brief introduction uh, to each of the panelists who are going to speak for a few minutes, and then I think we're going to be opening up to questions and dialogue. But the uh, first speaker today is uh, Professor Richard Vetter, uh, who is Professor of Economics at Ohio University and founder of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity. Okay. Your turn. Okay. Thanks, Liz. Um, sometimes I get a few laughs from audiences when I claim that, with the possible exception of prostitution, teaching is the only profession that has had absolutely no productivity advance in the 2,400 years since Socrates taught the youth of Athens. While Socrates did not use PowerPoint or even have a blackboard, in essence, his approach to spreading knowledge and wisdom is pretty similar to what goes on most of the time in American colleges and universities. And frankly, I think most of the teaching today is probably not as insightful as Socrates was. So 
But in measuring productivity in higher education, it's an extremely difficult thing for three reasons. First, modern universities don't simply teach. They do a variety of other things. We can talk about the productivity of faculty, but what about the productivity of the vast bureaucracy that's roughly equal to the faculty in size, the so-called support staff? How do we measure the productivity of research? Uh, and, and don't forget, most universities are also in the food and lodging and entertainment businesses. Some run hospitals and clinics that in some cases consume as many resources as the rest of the university combined. Adding together the productivity of, say, university food service workers with that of faculty members may be a little bit like adding together apples and oranges. There's a second problem I think that is huge, measuring outcomes or output in higher ed. Presumably professors are in the business of creating and imparting knowledge and insights, critical thinking or writing skills, maybe even promoting civil conduct and maturity and compassion. How do you measure these things? Maybe even one could argue the ultimate bottom line of higher education is the productivity of the college graduates in the labor force perhaps years later. But do we have professor by professor or even college by college really good information on what our graduates are doing or how much they're making? The answer in general is no. We are generally relatively clueless as to whether our seniors know more than our freshmen, whether the value added to knowledge and wisdom in the fourth year of instruction is as great as it was in the first and second year, and so forth. A third problem arises, I think, because higher education is not sold in a free, unfettered marketplace where prices accurately reflect the interaction between consumer desires as well as the resources used by producers to offer their services. Third parties, most importantly governments, but also to some extent private philanthropic interests, subsidize higher education, and this leads in some cases, in almost all cases, to distorted prices for educational services uh, that do not solely reflect the human actions of buyers and sellers in the marketplace. Now, in spite of all these problems, we can try to roughly guess what has happened to higher education productivity over the years, making various seemingly plausible assumptions. With, in my judgment, with nearly any reasonable scenario, it is difficult to see strong advances in productivity at a time when productivity outside of higher education is rising. The government data suggests that since 1970, uh, the average American worker's output has risen, uh, inflation adjusted by 126 percent, uh, compared with his or her counterpart in 1970. Uh, oh, in the 40 years since then, uh, that's a compounded annual growth rate of 2.06 percent. If you make the heroic assumption that higher ed productivity has risen 1 percent a year, uh, the gap between the two has risen. So if, the two, if you had two workers who were comparable in productivity in 1970 and somehow they were still mysteriously both working in 2010, uh, the one in 2010 would be with a 1% growth in productivity only two-thirds as productive as the uh, non-higher ed worker. And if, 
If productivity had risen not at all in higher ed, the, the, the uh, two workers, the productivity of the private sector worker would be more than double that of the higher ed worker. So the gaps are growing. But the wages in higher ed of faculty and non-faculty alike have risen roughly comparable to that of the rest of the economy. And therefore, we have a huge increase in labor costs in colleges and universities arising from the relative stagnation in productivity. And it's these rising costs that have contributed to the sharp increase in the cost of higher education uh, since uh, over time. Now, as mentioned earlier, uh, faculty members are only part of the productivity problem. Uh, in a strange middle-of-the-night press release last Sunday, the University of Texas presented a study in which it bragged that UT Austin faculty brought in over $2 in state appropriation subsidies and research grant money for every $1 earned in salaries and benefits by the faculty. And that doesn't even include the university funds received from other sources, such as gifts and endowments. Indeed, faculty members at Texas and elsewhere constitute no more than a third of total university outlays, typically, even after excluding the auxiliary enterprises like housing and athletic operations. So we need to look also at the huge explosion in support staff. The category of non-instructional professional workers is growing by leaps and bounds in universities, and if you view them as part of the instructional mission, then it would take huge increases in output per faculty member for any productivity uh, to take place in all of higher education since 1970. But let's get back to the topic of the faculty. Are professors teaching more uh, students today than in 1970? On average, no. Are the students learning more? Who knows? But the limited evidence that I've seen makes me highly skeptical that they are. We know, for example, on average, that students spend less time on academic pursuit, probably 25 to 30 percent less on average than in 1970. We know that some evidence suggests that typically contemporary college seniors have accumulated little in the way of critical thinking or writing skills during their college years. Are faculty members doing more research? Probably yes, measured by academic paper production or other indicators. But since much contemporary research seems to be of, have a very limited audience and arguably deals with matters of trivia, it's highly doubtful that there's been major advances in true research productivity over time. And for speaking personally, as one who was teaching both in 1970 and 2010, in fact, I have final exams to go back to read after I get done here, I personally doubt very much whether faculty productivity in its totality has changed much at all, and certainly not more than, a, say, a fraction of 1% a year. So to me, the more interesting question is, what can we do to enhance faculty productivity? And I think... The three I words are important here. Three I words. We used to, I was on the Spellings Commission. We talked about the A words, accessibility, what were they, Liz? Affordability, accountability. And now I'm talking about I words. Information, incentives, and innovation. In order to raise productivity, we have to know what we're doing and what our outcomes are. 
And for the instructional fu uh, f function, we might like answers to questions like these. Are students graduating no more and thinking better than when they started? Are students engaged in their work, showing high levels of satisfaction on the one hand, yet simultaneously performing intellectually meaningful tasks? What happens to the students after they graduate? Do they get jobs in their chosen or related fields? How are they doing financially 5, 10, or 20 years after graduation? And to be good, we really need this information not at the university level, but that of at least the individual department. Does our investment in the accounting faculty, for example, compare favorably with that of our investment in mechanical engineering or sociology? There are ways to get answers to questions like these. Many campuses, of course, administer tests like the Collegiate Learning Assessment or the National Assessment of Student Engagement. The IRS and the Social Security Administration have valuable earnings data on alums. They don't publish it, but they have it. Uh, yet we don't, and so we don't tackle these data sources, and, and when we do, the faculty often rise up in anger. Uh, recently in the state of Texas, uh, when detailed data were uh, published uh, uh, regarding such things as research grants per faculty member, the size of classes, the number of classes, and so forth. So this gets me to incentives. Uh, in traditional higher education, there are few incentives to be efficient, to increase productivity, and so forth. Department chairs and heads use bureaucratic infighting and the powers of persuasion to obtain more resources often, and those, those chairs are popular. They usually get good raises. But in the process of doing all this, they are often actually lowering productivity, increasing the amount of resources used for every unit of outcome. By contrast, the for-profit uh, uh, higher education sector is leaner, and some would say meaner, uh, focusing with more laser-like intensity on the single goal of providing good instructional outcomes for the dollar spent. My, the way I look at it, college presidents thrive and succeed and keep their jobs by raising and spending huge sums of money. Using the incremental monies that they receive to bribe the various constituents that they have that have the potential of causing them problems and making life miserable for them and even costing them jobs. So the good university president will give professors a good in the sense of uh, job security and popularity. The good university professor uh, president will give professors low teaching loads, good salaries. Parking, uh, alums will get expensive but good sports programs. Students will get nice recreational facilities and housing facilities, not too rigorous courses, and no major barriers to booze and sex. In the for-profit sector, however, they, they have to concentrate more and do emphasize more lowering costs and improving product quality uh, because doing so leads to benefits uh, financially uh, that have rewards for the, the people concerned, including the university president. So given the lack of strong productivity-enhancing incentives in traditional higher education and the difficulty of affecting true reform, perhaps ultimately traditional universities will start to falter 
and be replaced by lower cost alternatives, or at least they will change their own missions to become something different. They, the lower cost alternatives could be for-profit institutions, non-degree career colleges, uh, open source online courses available at near zero cost, uh, outfits like Straighter Line and uh, the Sailor Foundation has got an interesting program going over near Georgetown here to, in a sense, give you uh, free courses online and so on. National certification tests for various occupations uh, that uh, uh, give alternatives to traditional higher education as a certification method. All of these things are things that we may see development in in the, ne in the next decade or two. Whether colleges want it or not, the unsustainable rise in higher education costs, combined, I think, with a growing political reluctance and ability to expand subsidies, uh, will lead to the current model coming under greater strain and eroding. College leaders who are successful will be ones who respond to this challenge and will affect major changes, sometimes, of course, uh, facing strong opposition from within the university uh, community. So, thank you. Next up is Mark Bauerline, a professor of English at Emory University and author of The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. Thank you, Liz. Uh, I'm standing up the podium just <clears throat> in order for, for everyone to, to see me. Okay, R Rich talked about uh, several general issues uh, about productivity, higher education costs, and impact. And uh, I'm really just going to focus it in on, on one area, one kind of faculty activity, and one kind of productivity that we have. And, and it really uh, involves uh, giving a little context and some of the findings of this report uh, that, that, the, uh, that, that I completed and that the Center uh, for College Affordability has, has issued. You can get it outside uh, when, when you leave. Now, uh, the issue really is about faculty productivity at research institutions in one area of the, of, of the campus, and that is in literary studies, departments of language and literature. And at those research universities, uh, it is understood to be a central part of a faculty member's job to produce research, mainly to write books and articles uh, in the field in which they're hired. And obviously, they are paid and promoted, tenured, salary increases, and all the other incentives are, including prestige, uh, are connected to the number of printed pages in, in peer-reviewed venues that that, produce, uh, that professor produces. Uh, and it is understood that this is part of your job. And it's not, uh, we heard the old publisher parish issue, and, and that, that, that really is the issue. But whereas maybe 30 or 40 years ago, that publisher parish mandate uh, applied only to maybe a hundred or so institutions uh, in, in the humanities in the United States, at least at the pace that is now required. Uh, according to the MLA, uh, more than 700 departments of language and literature in the United States do count research more than teaching. Okay? So when you come up for tenure, the first question is, what's the research? Where's the book? Where are the articles? 
And not only that, but uh, do we have an expansion of the number of departments that do count research above teaching, but those departments that do have raised the amount required. According to the MLA, it's gone way up in the last 30 years. Uh, now, at, at most Research One universities, you, you need, in, in, in English, say, you need a book in press or a book out, several articles, uh, and a second book project clarified. Okay, clearly underway, and that's, that's the evaluation. That, that's where things stand. It counts more than teaching, certainly a lot more than service. And this project uh, has a, a significant uh, number of subscribers. When you take 700, if you add up all the professors, the lecturers, the adjuncts who want to be professors, the graduate students, and so on, you're talking, I would estimate, more than 50,000 people who are engaged in research as their primary activity. It is the way for them to, to advance uh, in the profession. The incentives are there. And so I, I've seen this for several decades. You know, when I came out of graduate school in the late 1980s out of UCLA, uh, I was a researcher. Right? I was understood by, by me and by all of, my, all of my fellows as this is the most consequential, advanced, authentic, and, and uh, advocating activity in the humanities. You can do nothing more than publish a book, publish a major article in one of the major journals to advance the field, not only to advance your own career, but to participate in literary studies. Okay? We, we all wanted to be uh, Stanley Fish or, or soon after Judith Butler, uh, the, the, the celebrity researcher, the theorist, the thinker. And this was understood. I mean, English and Complet and French in the late 80s, they were riding high. Uh, they were hot fields. And it was understood that, that the most advanced thinking in those areas were the most advanced thinking on the campus. And that this has, again, produced uh, thousands and thousands of people out there to interpret, to research, to compose arguments, to compile materials, and publish, publish, publish. Uh, that, that's what it's all about. And so uh, I've seen this over the years and just wondered uh, about, uh, over time, what is the viability of this enterprise? What is the consequence of, for instance, some 21,000 items of scholarship being, according to the MLA, being published on Shakespeare from 1981 or so to, 19, to 2007? 21,000. That didn't... <coughs> Changed the fact that another 700 items were published the following year. Uh, from uh, uh, 1935 to 1965, there were about 230 items of scholarship published on Emily Dickinson. Okay. Less than 10, from about 7 per year. From, 19, uh, from 1980 to about 2010, there were 2,000, more than 2,000 items of scholarship published on Emily Dickinson, more than a 900% increase in, in growth over those years. That shows how much the publication mandate in this area has exploded. And I just thought maybe to raise the practical question, after 2,000 items of scholarship have been published on Emily Dickinson, the 2,001st has to say something that the previous 2,000 did not say. 
right? You have to do original research. You have to find new things to say about Emily Dickinson's poetry, whose corpus is pretty much the same since around 1955. And this is a, a terrible pressure, I think, to put on younger scholars, especially. Uh, they have to publish to get ahead, but they're coming after decades, again, of explosion. About 1960, around a little under 14,000 items of scholarship were published in all the language and literature fields. Now it's 70,000 every year uh, coming out. That's a terrible burden of originality and research to place on people. And one wonders what happens when the fields get so crowded with publications coming out every year, book after book after book. And so I, I, I just worked out uh, a, a plan to try to assess uh, the costs and impact. And I, I just picked four public universities that stand somewhere you know, about from, from 20th to 70th in the, in the graduate school rankings. And I started to look at it in terms of three ways. One, costs. One, production. And, or two, production. And three, impact. Costs. Uh, a lot of humanities colleagues of mine complain about the lack of support. You know, look at, this, look at what the sciences get. But we, we, don't get, we don't get enough money to support our research. We don't get enough respect. And I, I wouldn't discount uh, that, that feeling. Uh, but we should remember that at research universities, you are paid, hired, contracted to do three things, research, teaching, and service. And uh, while, fact, while, while most universities, some do, but most universities don't make a strict breakdown of do this, do this, do this in these proportions, we all know that research certainly is at the very least one-third of your duty. You should spend one-third, at least one-third of your time on research. Okay. And so this means that we can simply look at salary in one-third, one-third, one-third terms. So if a $75,000 a year professor, not including benefits, we can call $25,000 of that is to support your research. That's why we give you a reduced teaching load so you can conduct your research and publish it. This is our investment. We're a research university. This is what you are required to do. And if you don't do it, you'll be fired. So uh, tenure time. Uh, so uh, we can calculate the costs of research, and I did it for these four departments. You can look at the, uh, at, at the charts in there. You know, they're paying about $27,000, $28,000 a year to professors to produce research. That's their investment, and they want to see a return in books, mainly books and articles. There are other items to do, but th those are the, that's the, uh, uh, the MLA calls the book the holy grail of, uh, of pursuing tenure. How do the faculty respond? Okay, actually, they respond quite industriously and conscientiously. They produce a lot at these institutions. The, the professor mowing his lawn on Thursday afternoon, uh, uh, taking it easy, especially after tenure, that simply didn't show up in, in what I examined. I looked at the publications of all those professors who are still there in those institutions between 2004 2009 and found they write a lot. They publish a lot. Even after tenure, when they won't be fired, they won't, they won't get good salary increases. They may get uh, uh, bad reviews on, on their – but no, they keep, they keep producing. They fulfill their side of the bargain quite well. 
Okay? And they produce very intelligent, thoughtful, diligent material. One thing to remember about works in literary studies, they are extremely labor-intensive. It takes a couple hundred hours to produce a research article, just to research and compose the research article. It takes years to publish a book. And when it finally appears, you've got this little artifact. Buried in that artifact is, again, months and years of a faculty member's life. A lot of training, a lot of expertise, a lot of intelligence, and a lot of labor goes into that 250-page book that occupies this much space on the shelf. So productivity, there on faculty productivity, as, as Richard said, there we can measure. And faculty members are intensely measured on that kind of productivity. You have to do your annual reports and fill out what you published. At tenure time, you've got your portfolio. They send it to outside readers who examine your work. You are very accountable on those grounds for what you produce. So on that sense, the system works very well. Okay. The lazy professor, they, 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 of course, they, the, the, those occur, but not very often. Now, there's a third part uh, to this. And what is scholarly communication for? It's to reach others and to be used by others. Others learn from it. And so I tried to calculate what is the impact. How much are these materials read and used? Now, we have no search engines, no way to determine how often something is read, you learn from it, you carry it into a classroom. Okay, we, we don't have that. Um, we don't have very precise data on sales of books. We don't have very precise data on books in libraries being checked out in, in these fields. It's coming, uh, but it's, it's, it's fuzzy. Uh, and so what, what, what are we left with? Well, one thing uh, that I thought we could do what the sciences do, and that is look at citations. Now, there in the humanities, we also have a problem in that citation counts uh, in the sciences work a lot better because they don't really have to deal with books. Okay. Books are hard to pick up, do, do citation measures. In sciences, uh, uh, mo most of the work isn't in, in book form. So that's one reason why the sci hard sciences can certainly measure people by how, how often their work is cited and used. In the humanities, we have to rely, here's what I did, rely upon the best search engine for the journals for essays is Google Scholar. Google Scholar picks up several hundred journals, um, about 400 journals, I think, now in the humanities. Uh, and uh, almost all of the journals that are central to the literary studies field. And so I went through and I looked at how often in those articles that are published are they cited in, in other places. And here is where we get to the bad news. And again, this is not gold standard social science. We need a big, big uh, uh, foundation or a big project to start trying to compile these materials exactly. But we certainly can can make a start. Uh, and here we have, uh, uh, in one case, uh, I looked at articles for, for one of the, for the four departments, and uh, you find that of 23 research essays published at one university, uh, 16 of them, in, in, in 2004, 16 of them received zero to two citations in the next six years. Zero to two citations. Four of them got three to six citations. One got eight, one 11, and one 
16. Okay, I count that a disappointing tally. Uh, here at, at another one, 13 research articles, 11 received 0 to 2 citations, one got 5 and one 12. Okay, you can see more numbers, but I'll just generalize by saying that the vast majority of these essays that are published receive little to no attention at all. And many of the citations that they do get are of the entirely perfunctory kind. For more on such and such, see such and such. Right? It's not a substantive engagement with that article. When you get to substantive engagements, it's under 10% of these articles that are published get dealt with in, in, again, terms like a couple of sentences within other articles. So there, the scholarly communication simply doesn't happen. When you consider all the work that went into producing that article, the money that went in to support it is just not met by the attention it received. This is a disappointing finding. For books perform better, which makes sense because it is a book-based discipline for tenure and, and promotion of full professor, but not by much. And when you consider all the work that goes into producing those books, we should have a lot more attention being given to that. So on the consumption side, the appreciation side, we simply have uh, insufficient, much insufficient evidence to justify all of the production of that work. Now, very important point. Is it because these aren't good essays? Not at all. Many of the essays that are published that get very little attention are deeply researched, they are intelligent, they are well argued, they are on issues central to the field. You cannot correlate this inattention with quality. Okay? And, and it's, it, for me, I read this, I read these essays, and I don't think just about the argument, but again, all of the work that went into this endeavor, all of the intelligence, the expertise that goes into it, that, again, failed to evoke the audience, the attention that, uh, that, that, that again, it deserved. So, the big conclusion. We have an army of highly skilled, very smart, highly trained, motivated, conscientious people having incentives to produce scholarly goods. They have to do it, and they want to do it. A lot of them find it very rewarding. Scholarly goods that simply, once they leave that scholar's hands, do not evoke yeah, significant attention. They go to the library, a circulation librarian told me the other day, the odds are 50% that one of those monographs purchased by the library and put on the shelves 10 years ago has never been checked out. Not even checked out. 50%. Uh, if, you, if you ask scholarly press editors, they will tell you, Harvard University, Lindsay Waters at Harvard University Press said a while back that uh, uh, unit sales for books in literary studies by Harvard, about 300, 300 to 400 total. Now, Harvard has standing library orders close to 300 itself, like 250 to 300 libraries buy everything Harvard publishes. So you get to motivated individual sellers are in the two figures for these books on 
average. Years and years of labor for 30 people to purchase. Now, finally, add in the opportunity costs. All the time the professors are spent doing this research, they're not doing other things. Meeting with students outside of class, spending more time with undergraduates, finding other ways to prosecute the, prosecute the mission of the humanities. And one, one concluding point I'll say is that one reason why the humanities have suffered, I think, with budget cuts and, and cutbacks and more and more adjuncts being hired is because those professors in the humanities at those institutions are atomized by the research. Okay? To maintain their place on campus, they have to act collectively. We are going to push for more foreign language requirements in the general ed curriculum. We are going to work with the freshman class to try to build more of a pipeline into our majors and into our classes. No, 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 no. They're all individualized. They don't get rewarded for doing that. They get rewarded for being by themselves, working on these articles in isolation. So while they're doing that, the house is crumbling here on the campus. That's one of the damaging impacts of, of the research. So uh, my, my suggestion is that universities conduct examinations of the research model in these departments to say, is this a proper use of faculty time and talent? Is this a way we want people to spend their lives on, in, in our campus, in their work? And, and I would say that campus leaders will find a much readier audience for this than they realize, because I do not know of any professor who loves the research model at its current pace. Everyone should be doing research inquiry of some kind. But it, the, this publication schedule is way too fast. It's asking people to publish too soon. Give them 10 years to write a book. Don't force them to do it in four years or th when they're trying to you know, adjust to a new department, trying to begin their teaching career. And you've got to get that manuscript ready. No, no, no. Let's slow it down. Okay? Let's start judging on quality instead of quantity as well. For me, three really good articles at Emory University, that's good enough for tenure for me. I proposed that the other day and people said, oh, no, 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 no. If we, if we get rid of the book requirement, we're lowering our standards. I said, no, 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 no. If we get rid of the book requirement, we're raising our standards. That's the adjustment that needs to happen. It's, 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 it's like a, it's almost a psychopolitical adjustment. No, no, don't do so much research. That's actually hurting you and hurting the humanities and hurting your department as well. That's a very tough argument to make uh, given decades of standard practice and all the egos that get, and all the investments in research identity. But I, I, I think that uh, uh, this, is, this is the way to go, and I'm going to be arguing this <laughs> continually over, over, the next, uh, over the next few years. So thank you. Great. <clears throat> thank you, Mark. Next up uh, is A. Lee Fritschler, a professor of public policy at <clears throat> George Mason University. Thank you. I'm pleased to uh, participate in this uh, panel on this program. Uh, I subject is very important, and uh, even more than that, I think it's uh, a fascinating one. Uh, how do we improve, how do we measure uh, faculty uh, productivity? Uh, from uh, my point of view, the first problem we have to confront 
uh, is that uh, higher education is a huge, huge enterprise. We now have about uh, 68, 69% of all high school graduates getting into it. Uh, we have 20 million students in it. Uh, we have all sorts of institutions with all sorts of missions. Uh, we have public institutions and private and for-profit and not-for-profit. Uh, it's a gigantic enterprise and we tend uh, to speak of this enterprise often as if there were no differentiation within it. Uh, and there is plenty. <clears throat> For example, I uh, was looking into the productivity subject more closely in the last couple of weeks uh, to prepare for this. I picked up a recent, I think the most recent issue of the Lumina Foundation study uh, that is uh, uh, by, I guess it's a monthly or bi-monthly report uh, to the public. And they have a uh, big story in here, uh, several pages, lots of color photos, uh, praising a program which they support at Rio Salado uh, Community College in Arizona. Uh, and they say there are two important numbers to remember uh, at that college. Uh, one is 23, uh, the other is 63,000. Uh, I did a little bit of the math, which they don't have in this article, and what they're saying is they have an enormously pro productive system out there in Arizona. Uh, one full-time faculty per 52 adjunct professors, one per 52. Uh, they have one full-time faculty member uh, per 2,695 students. Uh, that uh, is certainly an impressive productivity number, uh, but I don't think it's a model uh, for all higher education, or perhaps even uh, most of it. Uh, on the other hand, I'm happy to applaud what they're doing, and I think the experimentation is uh, interesting, uh, but it's difficult to deal with this subject uh, when you get examples like that, uh, which are all within the higher education environment, uh, but really quite different uh, from institutions within it. And by the way, I, I was at one point Assistant Secretary for Higher Ed, and I can tell you from a government's perspective, uh, we have to deal with all institutions uh, pretty much in the same way. It's hard to differentiate uh, between them. Uh, so something posed by government uh, for the community colleges or the Rio Salado colleges of this country uh, have to be uh, applied uh, pretty much in the same way to every higher education institution. And that's a major obstacle to reform, it seems to me, but it's also a major requirement of democratic government, uh, and I don't know how you square that circle. You certainly don't do it easily. The other uh, challenge I want to mention uh, is uh, the data challenge. There's an awful lot of data out there on what we're doing in higher education. There's much international data. I'm going to use a lot of it uh, myself because I happen to be something of a data freak. Uh, but I want to say first that this data is pretty soft, especially uh, the international data, uh, often used incorrectly, often used to make points which really can't be substantiated based on the data there. Uh, but anyway, there's plenty of it in the debate, and you'll hear some of it from me in a few moments. Uh, what is the problem uh, we're talking about? That's my third uh, major point. Uh, it's, uh, it's an elusive one uh, for sure, but it's also one that's pretty difficult to define. And if we're going to approach a solution in a semi-scientific way, 
uh, we need to first uh, know exactly, or rather quite precisely, if not exactly, uh, what the problem is. Uh, I remember, it always reminds me when I say this, I remember the first science course I took. It must have been in junior high, and the teacher, <clears throat> quite a wit, good teacher, uh, said uh, the scientific method, first step in it is you must know what your problem is. For example, remember the man who spent $100,000 to get rid of body odor and then discovered that nobody liked him anyway. Uh, so that's the, the, uh, uh, the memory I have of my first uh, science uh, course. Uh, we, we hear a lot of things about costs. Uh, there, we still don't differentiate significantly or properly between cost and price. Uh, it's very interesting to look at these numbers. Costs for higher education and on a per capita basis, uh, inflation adjusted, have remained relatively constant over the last 10 or 12 years, if you just look at that period. The price has gone up um, mainly because for the first eight years of those 10 years, uh, tuition went up to replace the cuts that states were making, quite understandably, in their budgets. Uh, so the, the revenues to a university remained flat, but a bigger percentage of them came uh, from tuition, uh, not state governments. In the last two years, <clears throat> tuition increases have not kept up uh, with the cuts that states are making. We're in a recession. That's also understandable. Uh, one can say about this that total costs are too high. We have to find a way to be more productive. <clears throat> but it's not accurate to say that costs are out of control, that universities are taking in more and more money and doing uh, less and less with it, because on a per capita basis, uh, those figures are relatively flat. All right, so what can we think about? What are the areas uh, where productivity on campuses uh, might be increased? And I want to also say by way of uh, introduction that I was a college president for a dozen years, so I saw a lot of this uh, close up. Uh, one area that is frustrating for presidents uh, is uh, the so-called amenities competition. It's very difficult uh, to run a successful uh, college or university if you don't have the amenities students seem to want these days. Uh, some of them seem frivolous, health centers, gymnasia, who knows, we can debate that. Uh, but I have never gone, I never went into a budget year in the 12 years I was there uh, where there weren't sincere and meaningful requests uh, for new buildings, uh, new science labs, uh, new computer labs. Uh, we rewired the campus in 12 years to accommodate uh, the digital revolution. And five years after I left, uh, we went uh, wireless. Uh, so, you know, it's just an endless uh, stream of investments one can make uh, in a campus, and it's very hard uh, to uh, control that. The full-time tenured faculty, let's look at faculty for a moment. Full-time tenured faculty in the U.S. <clears throat> between the years of 75 and 2000 declined from about 30% to 17%. Uh, that's a huge decline, and that, it seems to me, uh, carries a lot of ramifications with it, which aren't very good, uh, but it also is an indication that, at least at the faculty level, there's an enormous increase in productivity because it costs a lot more to support a tenured full professor, 
and Mark uh, gave some of the reasons for that a few minutes ago, than it costs to maintain an adjunct faculty member who replaces these people. So from 30% to 17% uh, in about uh, 12 <coughs> years. Uh, that's an enormous change and I think an enormous uh, productivity increase if you're just looking at the uh, finances of the thing. Uh, athletics uh, are a big problem. Uh, I mean, you all know this. I don't want to dwell on it. Uh, but the Knight Commission's most recent report just a few weeks ago, they said that sports spending ha has been growing at the rate of 13% per year on campuses, while academic spending has been ri raising, rising at the rate of 5% a year. Uh, now, you could argue that uh, it's maybe a good investment for this 13% increase because it increases donations, it increases visibility, uh, maybe, but most studies show uh, that schools don't make money uh, from their athletic programs. They, in fact, lose them. And I heard on the radio on the way down here today that the University of Maryland is thinking about uh, cutting about five or six uh, intercollegiate sports to make their sports budget uh, balance. <clears throat> Pick on Penn State, that's uh, popular these weeks for horrible reasons, but uh, the average uh, football coach salary there, I noticed, is $1.4 million a year. Uh, that's a pretty big uh, salary, again, maybe supported by outsiders, uh, but it does uh, mess up the productivity figures anyway <laughs> a little bit, uh, and it does seem uh, to me to be a bit egregious. Uh, another area, the increase in the number of administrators. We've heard this uh, today. Uh, Richard uh, mentioned it. Uh, the Goldwater Report, uh, a foundation in Phoenix, uh, just came out uh, with a study. And uh, they said uh, between 1993 and 2007, student enrollments increased by 14.5 percent, and the number of administrators per 100 students increased by 40 percent. So the number of administrators on a campus is increasing uh, to deal with the student increase at a much faster rate than the faculty is. And I, don't, uh, I now teach at George Mason University, a terrific place, very successful. I just, uh, for the heck of it, took a look at the phone book this morning, actually, before I came down here. Big thing, 35,000 students, lots of faculty and staff. Our provost has... Uh, depending on how you count this, between 15 and 20 assistant provosts who are staffed to do various things. Uh, I don't know the total number of people in that office. I didn't count them. Uh, but I thought, boy, uh, this is astounding. I have never uh, could imagine uh, that kind of centralization, that kind of growth uh, in the central administration of the university. I'm sure there are arguments for it, and uh, I don't have them. Uh, but uh, uh, he, I'm sure that he would justify that uh, in some way or the other. Uh, by the way, this raises one question in my mind, which we talked about a bit at dinner last night. Uh, I think uh, trustees are letting universities down on this dimension of our activities. Uh, trustees, most of them, uh, come from the business world. They're experts in management. Uh, I don't understand why they can't look at the institutions over which they preside and take a careful look at this enormous expansion of uh, administrators and support people uh, and uh, find uh, some ways to cut that back and make it more efficient. Uh, to focus on the faculty, 
uh, I think is the wrong place, uh, given the statistics I gave you on faculty growth and uh, actually uh, diminishment in the last uh, few years. Uh, but faculty have tenure, it's more complicated. Uh, but uh, administrators, one would think, especially from the perspective of a trustee who has management experience, uh, would be an easy thing to look at. Uh, and as far as I know, there really isn't a lot of that, and the data uh, certainly indicates that not much has been done. <clears throat> so I would say uh, to the trustees, uh, where are you when we need you? Uh, this is something that you should be able to handle, I think, uh, better than you're handling uh, right now. Uh, all right, now uh, on to uh, the, uh, the core subject here, a very closely related one. How uh, do we move from this situation uh, to another one uh, where we bring down costs, where we increase uh, productivity? Uh, my colleague Art Hauptman and I, Art's on the program this afternoon, uh, have been uh, working on this subject. And uh, we, have, uh, we work uh, from a, a matrix uh, which uh, focuses on, I should say, the core functions of uh, a university. Uh, namely uh, uh, teaching, uh, namely curriculum development, uh, namely deciding who gets in and who gets out and who gets a degree and what those degrees require. Uh, those uh, functions are the central functions of a university and there are three ways in which they are regulated historically uh, and uh, today. Uh, I would say historically those functions were regulated uh, by professionals, by peer review, uh, by uh, professional judgment, and there was uh, very little uh, intervention by uh, government uh, in those areas. Uh, that's changing. Uh, perhaps we should expect this. There are reasons for it. Government puts a lot of money uh, into higher education. They have a right to know uh, what uh, we're doing it. Uh, so the government controls over these core functions in a university are expanding. And the third way of regulating uh, the uh, productivity of uh, universities is market mechanisms. So uh, you have to look at these three things uh, separately and how they interact with each other, uh, government controls, regulation, market mechanisms, and uh, professional judgment or self-regulation. Uh, there are uh, so many proposals out there and there's so much uh, discussion of all this, it's rather difficult. Uh, to focus in on any uh, particular point, uh, but uh, let me focus on a couple that you're going to be discussing this afternoon, that is the uh, Texas uh, proposals. Uh, one of the eight, or is it seven, seven or eight uh, proposals is to rely more heavily <clears throat> on student evaluation of uh, faculty uh, and also the faculty workload, how many students sign up uh, to teach, uh, with a, uh, to study, uh, with a faculty member, take those classes, and the uh, dollars uh, which a faculty member brings in from the outside in research funding. I uh, view this as a huge change in the way universities work or would work if these were adopted, and I think they have consequences which could be really very negative. Uh, just to <coughs> put myself in, in uh, white clothing here, I want to say I've been teaching the last nine years at George Mason and uh, I've brought in about eight million dollars worth of research grants and I have very good student evaluations. So I'm a happy camper <clears throat> and would benefit, I believe, uh, from uh, this uh, particular way 
of measuring my performance. Uh, but it raises all sorts of questions about uh, who is in charge in the classroom, uh, who decides on what a curriculum should be, at what age does a student uh, have more to say than they do when they first start. I mean, I think we assume when a student goes to first grade, uh, he does not or she does not tell the teacher what he or she wants to learn. And then we go up through high school and that pattern uh, persists uh, all the way through high school, uh, more or less. Then a student graduates from high school in June and appears on a university campus in August or September. Uh, and I guess we're supposed to ask, what is it you'd like to learn? Uh, and how would you like to learn it? Uh, and uh, by the way, uh, we're going to have a state uh, commission, this is part of the proposal in Texas, uh, which will write a contract uh, which uh, the faculty member and you both must sign uh, as to what it is you're going to learn uh, and whether or not uh, we, the faculty, were able to deliver on it uh, by the end of the semester. <clears throat> I think the uh, uh, system is, uh, uns the proposal is extremely unsound. Uh, needs to be uh, looked at a lot more carefully. And I'd also add that uh, I don't see why uh, this would increase productivity. Uh, it seems to me it could easily have the opposite effect. It would certainly require many more people in the provost's office uh, to gather the data necessary to write the contracts, to enforce the contracts. We need to have all sorts of uh, much more detailed uh, course evaluations uh, done uh, one way or the other. I'm sure the litigation costs would be extremely high. Student says, you didn't fulfill my contract, you flunked me out, uh, I didn't learn anything, I want my money back. I mean, you can imagine all kinds of debates uh, uh, developing over that. Uh, I don't uh, think we have the standards or the evaluation or measurement techniques uh, to do this and probably shouldn't have it. And I don't think uh, it has anything to do with quality enhancement in a positive way, but uh, probably a negative one. Thank you very much, Lee. Um, each of you have had provocative uh, aspects of this uh, discussion, and I, I wanted to begin by asking each of you a question. Um, in, you've, you've each tackled different areas, and I'm wondering, can you agree on an optimal definition of what faculty productivity is? And just picking up what Lee was saying just now, are the current methodologies available right now um, sufficiently sophisticated? Well, to me, productivity of anything uh, is relating what the resource, the person in this case, does to what it costs to get that done. And cost here, uh, so if you, economists attempt to uh, formally define productivity in terms of output per worker. And so what is the output of a faculty person uh, uh, and how is that changing over time? That was my argument at the beginning. This is murky. It is murky. It's difficult. It's not easy. Uh, but we can look at subsets of that. Mark, I think, has done a beautiful job of looking at one small subset of that, and, and he admitted it's not the gold standard, it's not the full story, but it's a little bit on the research component of it. Uh, similarly, we can do the same thing on the teaching component, getting to Lee's point. Uh, 
Student evaluations, I don't want to get in a long discussion. I don't use them anymore anyway. I threw them out. I violate my university's rules by doing it. I've always been number one in my department on evaluation. Won every teaching where I said, the hell with it. I don't need it anymore. Besides, I'm retired. I have tenure, and I'm still teaching. So screw it. I'm not going to use them. And so I have some of the same concerns. But on the other hand, student evaluations are not totally irrelevant. Customer satisfaction is indeed a component. Uh, students who uh, I think evaluate professors better probably on average are a little bit better professors measured in learning outcomes than the ones that don't. That's an empirical issue. So the point is it's murky and I don't know the answer and that's what we're trying to do. Find a way to get to an answer to the question of, of faculty productivity. Uh, you know, productivity certainly varies. However you define it, it's going to vary across disciplines uh, because of the nature of those disciplines call for, for example, a different understanding of, of teaching, uh, in, of instruction. For instance, using productivity, a measure like number of students served, uh, doesn't quite uh, match uh, what uh, some of the most important uh, aspects of a humanities course uh, involve. So that if you sit in your office and you spend six hours in with you know, 15 students one after the other, spending a half an hour each with, with that student going over a five-page rough draft, I mean sentences, verbs, commas, that is an intense, intensely productive day of instruction. But you're only seeing one student at a time, right? It's one-on-one. It's -on -one. And you're going to look less engaged with those students at the end of the year than the, than the faculty member who taught uh, a 300-person survey course who never, ever saw a student outside of class. So you, you, you have to start working in some qualitative differences in, in, in faculty productivity measures. And that, that comes back to R Richard's just initial point of you, you, have to, you, you have to lay out, to measure productivity, you have to lay out, okay, what are the outcomes? Okay, what is, what is the nature of the labor as, as well? The economic definition of you know, worker output uh, simply doesn't doesn't have enough variation uh, to meet it. So I think this has to be done. Uh, I think it should be done, but it should be done on, on a very local level uh, within the campus, not just each campus to campus, but maybe you know, certain categories of departments to departments. That last point, it strikes me as being very, very important. Uh, this, to do it on a national or a statewide basis just begs for disasters because the more people you include, uh, the more quantitative your judgment has to be uh, and uh, it uh, doesn't work uh, after a while. Uh, I uh, would go back to the Rio Salido uh, situation. Uh, there is a very, very productive uh, higher education institution, 23 faculty for 63,000 students. Uh, my goodness, uh, you can't really improve on that. Uh, but uh, frankly, without knowing anything, I'm not even sure where in Arizona this place is, I'm a little bit suspicious. Uh, how on earth uh, can you do that? Uh, I would say the quality cannot possibly be as high 
uh, as in an institution where uh, Mark and uh, Richard are teaching much smaller classes. Uh, maybe one of the ways of approaching this, though, is from, at least we're going to look at it from a more macro level, is to raise the question about how many students should we be uh, offering uh, college or higher education work. I mean, I, the, the uh, mood out there today, the Lumina Foundation and other groups uh, think that we should be close to 80 percent. What's the uh, Obama goal is 80, isn't it? 2025. Yeah. Uh, I think that is going to uh, reduce quality, obviously. I think it also might be impossible. Uh, and uh, it certainly is going to stand in the way of any improvement uh, in uh, assessment of quality and the assessment, any, any real measure, any real assessment of uh, productivity. So uh, higher education is becoming more and more like uh, elementary and secondary in a lot of ways, and you know what their problems are, uh, and we're inheriting the same ones in uh, higher education. And I just think that the problem is it's maybe too big, and perhaps a way to deal with this, and it's really tough politically to do this, maybe it's impossible, is to differentiate between types of institutions. I don't want to steal thunder from this afternoon's session, but do either of you think there are lessons from the Texas uh, study in the Texas plan? Yeah, yeah, let me speak a little bit to that. And I, I think the people in Texas have opened up a useful debate. I think it's useful to ask the questions that they're asking. I think it's also perhaps too simplistic. It needs to be refined, but it still has to be asked. I've looked some at the Texas data. And by the way, all the discussion in this, we'll hear about this afternoon, but it's about the University of Texas at Austin. I just happened to look at the other campuses, the University of Texas. And this gets to a point Lee made. It's difficult to compare different institutions. Well, I instructional costs measured by faculty salaries and so forth per student are twice as high at the Austin campus, the University of Texas, as at the Arlington campus, the San Antonio campus, and several other campuses. Now that may be a totally justifiable differential. Uh, you know, I'm not passing judgment. But I think it's interesting at a time when people are talking about the amount of resources going to higher ed and that one school would spend twice as much, not on narrow group of faculty, but we're talking about 4,000 faculty at the University of Texas at Austin. We're talking about whole faculties. Why the cost would be that great? Maybe it's explainable by disciplinary differences. Uh, Austin has more English professors than uh, Arlington, uh, uh, or Arlington has more English professors and Austin has more uh, mechanical engineers or, that are higher paid or something. You know, I don't know. But I think these open up important questions. So I think Texas is doing the right thing by asking these questions. I hear the movement may spread to other states. I applaud it. I also agree with Lee and I also agree with Mark that there are limits to this approach. And they need to be refined and so forth. But at least we're opening up a discussion. What do you open? Uh, just, just quickly, I, I, one thing that uh, has, has been a little dismaying is that while a lot of the criticisms of or the responses to, to the Texas report make salient points, I, I think there, there, there's been mingled with it too much, too much defensiveness, uh, too, too, too much resentment uh, in, 
in in responding to it and too much of an assumption of they're they're out to they're out to get us and i think that that's a losing strategy in in political circles that uh it would be much more effective for the faculty or or other higher education groups who reject the, the these kinds of proposals to summon right just just strong empirical evidence and good statements about uh, how well this does apply here, it doesn't apply here. I think I think just a more. I haven't read the text, the, the last weekend's Texas report on this or not. Maybe that does it. But but just uh, sort sort of faculty um, faculty knee jerk reactions uh, actually are damaging to the faculty in in the court of public opinion. I guess I'm an outlier on this. My uh, experience has been that faculty are generally unaware uh, of this debate, certainly on a national level. I can't speak to Texas. I want to uh, congratulate Cato for involving faculty members in this meeting. Uh, Most meetings I go to in this town, there's never a faculty member on a panel uh, or even in the audience. So, uh, uh, this is uh, a terrific uh, refreshment. I don't know quite how to behave, uh, actually. And, but I think the, uh, uh, you know, of course, uh, I mean, it just seems so absurd on the face of it uh, to set up a government regulatory agency uh, to uh, set contracts between student and faculty on what students must learn or should learn or have learned in higher education when you can't really uh, defend any of this. I mean, uh, sure, let's have a discussion, uh, all that's fine, uh, but uh, I'm also guessing that the proposal is put out there to, uh, to goad uh, faculty and to get uh, a strong reaction and uh, use that in a negative way, uh, and uh, that's at least succeeding with me. Uh, I had just one last question uh, before we open uh, questions up for the audience. Uh, I wanted to pick up on a point that Rich said that there could be some models from the for-profit industry in terms of thinking about faculty productivity and efficiency. And I wondered what each of you thought about that argument. Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, But again, it goes a lot to... uh, well, two things bother me about uh, the for-profits, and I'm generally uh, very supportive uh, of them. Uh, one is that they use mostly adjunct faculty. And, yeah, adjunct faculty can teach a course, and some of them can do it brilliantly, and they get three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 here in this town uh, to teach uh, one course, and that is a big uh, revenue raiser for the for-profits as well as the not-for-profits. But... Faculty also do other things. They advise students. They supervise dissertations and master's theses. Uh, they uh, devise curricula. Uh, they do some of the things Mark uh, was talking about, which I think improves their ability to teach. Uh, so uh, the, the faculty life, uh, full-time faculty life, is quite different from part-time. And then I'll say something else, which I often get knocked down on, so I expect it here, too. Uh, the p- one thing that bothers me about the for-profits today especially is that 85% of their revenues come from government, and they take huge profits, a lot of them very huge profits, uh, and that, then those profits then go to the investors. 
uh, they don't go back into higher education. In the not-for-profit world, any surplus, and there, there sometimes is some, uh, gets uh, distributed back into uh, the university system. So I, th I think at one level, uh, it's a rather flawed market. And for the free enterprisers to say, well, all we're doing is investing in a business and we deserve a return, but what they're doing is investing in a government program uh, where 85% of the revenues come uh, from the government. It doesn't add up to me. Well, I uh -oh. have to respond to that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not here to do, as an apologist for the for-profits, and the for-profits are like any organization. There are good ones, there's bad ones, there's good actors, there's bad actors, there's good performances, there's bad. But the notion that profits are somehow a drain, or they're taking away, ignores the fact that profits are generated in the process as a return on capital investment. That's what profits are. And the capital investment in higher ed is, is assumed by the academy to sort of come from God, that somehow these buildings were put there. Someone, and it's, it's interesting, as higher education enrollments have expanded in the last two or three years, you look at where the incremental enrollments are coming. A large percentage of them are coming in the for-profits, rightly or wrongly. Who's investing in the buildings and the equipment and so forth in those buildings? It's the people in the for-profits. The taxpayers are not being... Uh, paying the bills. So I think the, uh, the notion that s somehow profits are a serious problem is, is, is really, uh, is unfortunate. It's, it's simply, a, they're counting for the capital expenses of higher ed in a more honest and more outward way, uh, in a more uh, transparent way than is the case uh, in the not-for-profit sector, where people give gifts and so forth to subsidize these sectors or the uh, and and the taxpayers are on uh, on the uh, uh, are paying the cost and and that doesn't get picked up uh, uh, in the accounting statistics. Accounting in higher education, by the way, is absolutely atrocious. Find a university that has a balance sheet. You tell me, I've never seen a balance sheet for a single university. If if a university were somehow put under the jurisdiction, a traditional university of the Securities and Exchange Commission. The president and the trustees would immediately receive, receive subpoenas or indictments. Uh, <laughs> enough said. Just quickly, I, I, I wonder, I don't know enough about the for-profit world, but I, I wonder if, if a lot of these questions won't come down to, over time, uh, how do the graduates of for-profit institutions fare? Uh, do employers start, you know, making generalizations about about graduates of of this or that for-profit or online institution versus versus graduates of, of not-for-profit? And and so it's sort of what what uh, what is the quality of of the graduate of of those relative institutions? Good. Uh, any questions from the audience at this point? Go ahead. It has always struck me, I'm sorry, it's always struck me that um, if you wanted universities to be more productive, more efficient, you should apply a totally private model. And I was kind of interested when you said 80% of profit 
did I hear you right that 80% of the revenue for for profit get is from the government? Is and student loans, yeah. So it seems to be that to call that a a for profit model, <laughs> you know, doesn't that seems like it isn't a for profit model. It's a it's quasi government uh model. It's not a for for profit model. If you get 80% of your revenue from the from the uh yeah, I think it's not quite for if I may respond, I think it's correct that 80, 85% of the revenue that universities, for-profit universities receive ultimately derives from government student loans made to students. But the right. students are paying the bills, and they, those students have a choice. They could just as well go to uh, not-for-profit institutions. Right. It is true that the for-profit sector is much more involved with government than maybe sometimes they would let on. Uh, but it is it's it, it isn't that the government it, it, that the government itself is giving these institutions money. They give students loans. The students decide where to go to school, and sometimes Pell grants as well. They decide where to go to school, and uh, uh, a large percentage of those going to the for profits are ones deriving student aid from government because, on average, they have lower incomes. They meet the criteria for these loans more than is true in the traditional uh, sector. Military benefits as well. Yeah, but these are lower lower interest rates, and so that's a subsidy. Yeah. Oh, these no loans question. are definitely a, yeah, subsidy. There's a lot of subsidy, and there's a lot of other government subsidies connected with universities. And uh, I was going to say just this one final comment. I always thought that the best way to, that universities should be run is they should charge what the whatever the market demands for their tuition in other words if you have a really good university then you should they 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 should select people not on the basis of their grades and their SAT they should select them on the basis of the market how much they want to pay perhaps the people who who need that university the most are not the smartest ones perhaps they're the ones who uh, you know who need to go there, and this idea that we grant, that we decide, well, we're going to let people go to a university based on, on uh, their their academic performance and their intelligence is to me is totally off. It should be how much they want to go, and if you have, if you want to give out uh, assistance, charity, so that poor people can go, that could be done separately through charitable op charitable operations and not not done by uh you know the university uh not charging the the full uh tuition that they should charge let, let, let's let's ask harvard to devote 10 percent of its entering class to those who score under 1000 on the sat how's that <laughs> no, no i i i I'm, I'm being whimsical but i think that's i think the point you made about some of the students who may be ambitious or hardworking, but you know, are, are lower scorers. You know, well, let's see the universities have some mission toward. You know, the top universities have some mission toward them, almost as an experiment. The reason why Harvard turns away ninety-five percent of students is the bottom line in higher ed is not how much revenue you can take in exactly, although that's a factor. It isn't how much profit you make. It's what your pr 
prestige is. And prestige, determined by rankings, is based in part on how many students you turn away. If Harvard were run the way McDonald's tried to run, were run the way that Harvard was run, it would be out of business in a nanosecond. McDonald's measures success on how many hamburgers they can sell. Harvard measures success more or less on how many students they turn away. Comparing McDonald's and Harvard uh, is too much of a stretch for me to follow. <laughs> Ma'am, um, a question? Um, actually, I'd like to uh, comment on, on both uh, Mark and Lee's um, remarks to some extent. And, and Mark, with regard to the, the, the research model that you identified and the tenured faculty uh, tradition, there's a there's sort of a, a perverse dark side of that as well, in that um, a lot of the research that's taking place in research one institutions is done by graduate students uh, who ultimately want to teach, and there are no jobs for those people. I mean, it's a pitiful market for higher education faculty, and 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 so there's this um, dynamic going on where the the tenured faculty are looking at grad students to help them support research agendas. Those people are, may or may not get jobs. But it's but it's a you got to break that cycle somehow, and I'm not sure how you do that. Hmm. But but that's just an observation. And um, uh, and to to Lee, who I do respect your uh, intent, focus on data. I would ask, what is the cost of the taxpayer to public universities? What is the percentage of their budgets are derived from the taxpayer on in one form or another? On average, two thirds. And then how many taxes do they pay to the federal government or the state government? How many, sorry? What is their tax bill to the state and federal government? Um, I'll give you a clue. It's zero. So, zero, except so, employees pay taxes. Absolutely. And, and sales a, taxes, local sales taxes. In the for-profit sector, literally millions of dollars are paid back to the Treasury in the form of corporate income taxes, employee taxes, and, and a variety of other forms of revenue. So it's not a simple... It's not a simple number when we say there well eighty percent of the of the income to for profit institutions is deriving from the taxpayers. It's, that's a part of the of the puzzle, but it's not all of it. Just you know, in, in about the job market. In two thousand nine, in the MLA job list there were sixty five total tenure track positions in all of the foreign languages offered in, in this country. Thousands of people were coming out of those Ph.D. programs that year, and <laughs> the odds of getting, getting one of the entry-level tenure-track position, you know, a total of 65. That was a really bad year. Things have, have recovered a bit, but still the mismatch between PhD, recent Ph.D.s and, and job openings, mm -hmm. actually, it's just getting wider uh, every year. In, in literary studies, literary studies. It's a big problem in a lot of disciplines. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we, we've done a poor job, and maybe it's impossible to do a good one in this country, to link <clears throat> labor markets with degrees, uh, in part because there's no good mechanism to do it, and also in part because the lead time uh, is so long. And for a Ph.D., it's six, eight, ten years. So, uh, you know, you have to then project what do we need ten years from now. I, uh, I think, though, that it's clear we've overdone it. Uh, but I also uh, can remember when a number of history 
faculty, uh, I mean, PhDs was way up, and there were a few positions. That seems to have turned around a bit now. Uh, I don't know what you do about that. Uh, the market doesn't do it well. Uh, we don't do it well at universities. And frankly, uh, the government doesn't do it well either. They do it very, very poorly. So uh, it's a problem, it seems to me, without a solution. Why don't we get rid of half the PhD programs in history? Who is we? <laughs> why don't the universities get rid of the program? Why, don't, why are the state legislatures subsidizing? Well, in, they, uh, they, did get, they, they did get rid of some, but I'm saying now, first, first of all, history departments do students more than PhDs. Exactly. exactly. Grad, graduate students pick up those freshman comp courses that uh, research professors regard as a, as a, uh, as a hindrance to, to their work. It's, it's, so it's cheap labor. Also, a graduate program very much flatters the egos of the professors in that department. It's nicer, a lot nicer to teach a graduate seminar three hours uh, one afternoon a week when you've got five students in there who want to be just like you versus, you know, teaching freshman comp, sitting across students who at one point say, look, I don't even like to read novels. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's a much more challenging, you know. State funding does what? There's a, there's a substantial, there's a substantial um, um, differential between state appropriations for grad programs versus undergrad. I think we have time for one more question. Someone up here? Uh, you know, given what has just been said about the opportunities, the big gap between opportunities and the degrees, why, is, why did Obama administration plan ahead of increasing college participation and so on? I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous. I, I know I'm from India, and there we had that problem, and it started reducing the numbers because, you know, if you've got too many graduates and no jobs for them, what's the use? Hmm. I think you've asked yeah. a very good question, but I'm not part of the Obama administration, so I can't answer and I, well, I think I, I think the the Bush administration also the spellings uh, departments uh, also pushed uh, upping college enrollment significantly yeah, that, as well. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And I I would add uh, this is one of my hobby horses, and you'll hear more about it this afternoon from my colleague. But I think it's based in large part on the misinterpretation and frankly outright misuse of international data. Uh, the OECD data, which allegedly shows us falling behind, uh, is just not accurate. I mean, that's not an accurate interpretation of their data, assuming their data is accurate. Uh, but uh, uh, we, there's this sort of idea uh, that uh, somehow or other China's producing more engineers than we are, and Europe is doing this and that, uh, and we're falling way behind. Uh, we're not. We're about the same position we've been in for years, uh, which is actually a pretty good one. But if you're president, you've got to have, you know, you've got to say change. You've got to get better. On that note, I think uh, we'll conclude this session. Thank you very much.